Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and it is the final Stacks book club day of the year. And we're wrapping up a solid 2021 season with one of my favorite books of the year, A Little Devil in America, Notes and Praise of Black Performance by Hanif Abdurraqib. Our guest for this conversation is TV writer and creator and co-host of the podcast, Yo! Is This Racist? Andrew T., Andrew and I talked today about the scope of this incredible book, the slippery slope of stand-up comedy, and our favorite and least favorite essays in the collection. There are no spoilers on this episode. Be sure to listen to the end of the podcast to find out what our first book club pick for 2022 will be. It's a good one. If you want more of the stacks, you can find bonus episodes, a Discord community, our virtual book club, discounts and merch, and so much more over on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the stacks pack. And shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Alejandra Rosales, Beth Lopes, Caitlin Cassidy, Emily Long, Lindsay Fitzpatrick, Ali Aggie 13, Erica M, and Jeremy Wang Iverson. This is an independent podcast, which means without the support of listeners like everyone I just named and the rest of the Stacks Pack, there would be no The Stacks. So thank you all so much. And now it's time for our deep dive into Hanif Abdurraqib's essay collection, A Little Devil in America, with our guest, Andrew T. All right, everybody, I'm really excited. It is the final Stacks Book Club of the year. We are joined again by the wonderful Andrew T. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Best best book, worst guest of the year. This is... You know what? We aim, we aim oh. to do it that way. <laughs> It's a roller coaster. (laughs) No, how dare you? Don't talk about my friend Andrew T that way. Um, Our book today is my favorite book of 2021. I'm pretty sure I'm recording this at the end of November. So maybe there could be something that sneaks in. But at this point, um, it is A Little Devil in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance by Hanif Abdurraqib. Um, I don't anticipate spoilers because it's a nonfiction essay collection. But if you haven't read the book and you don't want to know anything about it, stop listening. Come back when you finish. Andrew, we always start these episodes the same way, which is what did you think kind of generally of the book? I I loved it. It took me longer than I think it, I, in retrospect, should have to like get what was happening. I I was like very 
not like confused, but I just didn't understand the mechanics of it for a, a while. Probably, I think we talked about this probably like 50, 60 pages, honestly. Where like I was the like, first two essays, basically. I think for me, it went a little longer. A little longer. I was like, I'm, st- I'm still conf- not like confused about what's in it, but it was like, I could tell there was a, and actually to, to the, even to the spoiler warning at the top, I don't think there are any like content spoiler warnings to this, but it was like a really interesting journey for me as far as like, cause you can kind of tell from, from just the trappings of the, like the chapter titles and, and even the table of contents, like, and, and like sort of what the title of the book and the subtitle, it's like, you could tell there's a there's something happening here, mm-hmm. um, but I was like, God, I'm really not seeing it um, mm. as far as like the construction and like the the way it was sort of put together. So that almost feels like a spoiler because maybe to me it was like such a huge revelation once I like kind of got the way these essays were being written. Um, right. Yeah, I get that. And then after you got into it, what did you think? So that was when I realized, first of all, I needed to go back and reread up to the point where the light bulb, where the sort of <laughs> light bulb went off. Um, but also a thing that you had said, I believe, offline, possibly in the earlier, but maybe I probably not, um, is is that you'd, you'd mentioned that when you were rereading it in preparation for this, you did it in conjunction with like watching some of the videos mm-hmm. and like and listening to the music and it really was like much more of a multimedia experience that's so that's what i did the the second time around it has really uh positively changed what my spotify algorithm thinks about <laughs> me in a in a really nice way actually i was like oh this is like much better than the like <laughs> my problem with spotify actually is that it's almost exclusively used for work stuff so mm. it's like a lot of soundtracks and a lot of pop music that's like does this go in this scene got it um and now so, it thinks that you're like a smart middle-aged yeah like, like black much, woman in the church <laughs> much smarter much cooler yeah, yeah i feel that <laughs> i had a similar so i read this for the first time i think in like february or march in anticipation of having hanif on the podcast and then when we decided to do it i did a reread and my reread i did on audio the second time i had the same thing my first read of the book that the first few essays especially the like on times i forced myself to dance sections i had no clue what hanif was doing like i couldn't figure out what the thing was and it wasn't until probably into the second or third essay that I really dropped in. I think it was about halfway through the second essay about grief and funerals that I was like, oh, I see. He's talking about the performance of grief Mm -hmm. or like the performance of whatever. And then once that went off for me, I could not get enough of this book. Like I Mm -hmm. even now talking about it a week after finishing it, I'm like, should I read it again? I feel like I don't even remember all the brilliance in the book. And like, on a sentence level, like the sentences in this book are just some of the most beautiful that I think I've read in a really long time, which I like sentences, but I'm not like horny for <laughs> right. sentences. Like writers yeah, can be like yeah, crazy yeah. about that. I, that's not really me. But this book made me feel like I was like, oh, I love a sentence. I am less, as far as writers go, less of a, um, not that I, I don't, love not love. I probably I, for a writer I probably could, I think I could safely say I don't love like sort of wordplay or mm-hmm. like perfect prose as much as um some folks do 
I am definitely more of like a story yeah. and like like kind of larger arc type of writer and reader. And I think also, yeah, it, it was the like the poetry of it that once it kicked in, it, it's impossible to not see. But mm-hmm. like, I really was like, because I think I, I, there was, there's a part of me, and this is probably the bad part of my brain, especially for like, not like nonfiction, but for like slightly obtuse writing was that there was definitely a part of me that was like, like treating it almost like a puzzle Mm. in the in the first like like what's the game of it what are we doing here and that is probably necessary for me but probably the wrongest way to read this book yeah um (laughs) like like it was just like like what am I doing and then like letting myself like kind of like get get into the prose and the like train of thought of it and mm-hmm. or the like free association and that and then it became an uh the other thing that was constantly nagging was just the like how does one even write something this good right of it like, <laughs> like I was having that especially the second time being like wait a second how is he weaving together these seemingly totally different separate strands like going from even like going from the chapter titles to the history and then like the pivot or the or the turn of the essay and then bringing it into the memoir and then bringing it into like a more contemporary example and then connecting that to the history and like the way that it's actually constructed mm-hmm. to me I've never seen an essay collection that is capable of doing that I usually feel like an essay collection collection that's really great is like really great memoir style essays or like really great humorous Mm -hmm. essays, but it's very clear what's going on. This Mm -hmm. book is like, wait, is this memoir? Is this criticism? Mm -hmm. Is this history? Like what's happening? And it is all of those things sort of equally. So it's really none of those things. It's like this new genre, which is my new favorite genre. I've only ever read one book in the genre and this is the one, but this is the new genre. (laughs) I mean, the the genre seems to be, and I wonder this. This makes me kind of wish, and I may still, I suppose, like I listen to the the audiobook, um, because the genre seems to be like, this is just the smartest motherfucker mm-hmm. you've ever mm-hmm. been near, just talking, yeah, and then like with the benefit, obviously, of like immense amounts of research, but then it's like, even just from like a writing standpoint, it's like, when does one apply the research i guess it is just like you just have to imagine you just iterate this over and over and over again you you've kind of vomit out the smartest version of free association and then you strengthen and you research and then research leads you to other free associations that you then like it seems like he's riffing but it's like right it can't be right like right no exactly it feels so it feels like almost conversational in the way that it bounces around, not in the writing itself. The writing feels like sort of heightened, but also conversational. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that I think is like so incredible about the writing, and I don't know if you were, if you did go back and watch any of the videos, like listen to any of the music, but the way that Hanif is able to write music and videos and things that are not written is so spectacular. Mm -hmm. Like when I finished the Mary Clayton essay, giving Mary Clayton her flowers, that one. I mm-hmm. went and listened to Give Me Shelter approximately a mm-hmm. hundred times. I could not 
not listen to that song in a totally different and new way. And like, yeah. I've, and I know that song and I love that song. So it wasn't a new thing for me, but like also going back and like watching the Whitney Houston performance at the Grammys and like, mm-hmm. like watch, watching that, a thing that I, again, have seen many times, like, it's just, it's crazy that someone can write the history of things that we've in, consumed with different senses, like with our eyes or our ears, and he can write it in a way that makes it feel alive and also new yeah. is just yeah. mind-blowing to me. The Mary Clayton, for sure, I and this maybe is simply just like the the change in the point of view, but it's like it, it changes the way you hear that song a in a way that's percent. like, so thorough. Um, the one that I went back to, like, very, like, that I hadn't seen before, so I guess not back, was in the essay about, ultimately about Soul Train. Mm-hmm. Um, just watching Don Cornelius do the uh, Soul Train line. Yes. And I was like, oh, my God, this is, like, so exactly as he describes, um, as, as Hanif describes. And it's like, oh. I would not have like thought of this. And it, it truly just felt like, you know, your smartest friend who like just was introducing you to something. Part of me does a little bit wonder, because I, when I started reading this, also didn't um I feel like this this bit me on another book that I can't remember what it was, but it was a like sort of contemporary, but not completely contemporary book. Um so there's a, there's a little passage just where he mentions Dave Chappelle mm-hmm. and there is, you know, obviously because Dave Chappelle has changed so much in recent times, right. it was like, it was just a little like, Oh, where's this going to go? I'm trying to, it must have, it was an essay about Kanye West from like two or three years ago or something mm-hmm. like that, where you're like, Whoa, you know, Oh, you don't have the benefit of now. But, um, so, so once, once I got past the passage about Dave Chappelle, it was clear that this was being written in like super contemporary times. Right. So I guess which is all to say, like, there is a part of me that's like, I wonder, not that I think that this book will age poorly, but I do think there maybe is like a specific like moment of this where you're like, I get exactly Mm -hmm. what you're saying. I consume Twitter and YouTube in a similar way. Because like when I looked up the Don Cornelius video, I was like, oh, this he... Not explicitly, but implicitly, I did exactly the thing that he probably did in his research. Mm-hmm. And I saw it in exactly the same way, probably on my phone or my computer in the same way. And I was like, it really felt like, oh, I was exactly in his head for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder if that feeling will fade for readers, like as oh, time moves on. Yeah. Maybe not. I don't think it makes it any less good, but it did. It hit me extra hard. Like, yeah. this is perfect. I get this, or I think I get this feeling at least. Um, That's interesting because I feel like the way that he protects against it being totally like of this moment is by incorporating the history, like the historical yes. examples. Like, it's like he talks about Don Cornelius, but he ties that into the dance marathons. Yeah. And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. Don Corn and like Don Cornelius is in the past for us also, but whatever, whatever yeah. of these things, it's like there's a more contemporary example, there's a more historical example, and then there's his relationship to the thing. But yeah. I also feel like the Dave Chappelle part, I I made a big highlighted note that I wanted to talk about this. So I'm gra- glad you brought it up. It's in the essay about magical Negroes and like my butthole clenched when he said, when he said Dave Chappelle, Mm -hmm. because the first time I read it, I didn't think anything of it. And then this time it was like, 
a week or two after sure the whole yeah. fallout at Netflix and them being real big dicks to trans people and him being a real big dick to trans people. And I, like, I literally was like, oh, fuck, I would have to talk about this on the show. Like, this sucks. I don't want to do this. Like, <laughs> fuck Dave Chappelle. I don't care. I don't want to defend. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like I was just like, ugh. but by the time he gets to the end of the essay, he sort of has protected himself against all that Dave Chappelle does after because he does mention how Dave Chappelle at one point was like transgressive in his humor and now is just like doing the same shit as the white people. Like he's Dave Chappelle is now making the jokes that the white people were laughing too hard at. Exactly. But now it's his joke. But I think there's even a line I want to read it because I like it jumped out to me where he says uh, it's sort of long. So sorry, everyone. He says Chappelle himself hasn't changed all that much, but the era has. The people who've craved permission from him haven't changed either. It's just that the permissions themselves have shifted. The same people who missed the message in his old jokes and laughed because it was funny to hear white people saying nigger are the people who now, like Chappelle, feel as though they are being censored from expressing the truest versions of themselves. In doing what he imagines as flying in the face of critics, Chappelle is once again confirming those who wish to be confirmed showing people that someone can say whatever they want however they want privilege and all be damned and so for me I was like that little chunk there is basically saying like all of the things I said about Dave Chappelle in the past maybe were true but Dave Chappelle is not that person anymore and he is now Mm -hmm. the person that Dave Chappelle was protecting himself against and so I felt like I didn't have to be like ugh Hanif loves Dave Chappelle because he very clearly is like I recognize that I'm defending this one moment of Dave Chappelle. Yeah. But also everything that's come since, like, fuck that and fuck that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and so I appreciate that. And it that. is, I think it's clear that I those, you know, maybe there is going to be hindsight about what those moments in the past were. But I think, like, also, like, in a vacuum, they absolutely were. And at least we, we can't know who Dave Chappelle, the person, actually was now mm-hmm. or then. I mean. Now it's maybe more evident, yeah. but certainly then. Um, but like, I, I think like you can talk about it in terms of blackness and and what like, I mean, I think, you know, the, the retrospect of it is very clear, I think, is that like Dave Chappelle is very fluent in talking about the perspective of a black man, a straight black man and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And that's like actually not like fine because of what he's sort of done with his power but it is like reasonable like you know it's it's not like it's sort of on us that we expect geniuses in one vector to be geniuses in every vector right you know right and also that like we feel like we can't like we can't call out these things yeah you know it's It's like tough it's hard because it feels like oh you want to cancel Dave Chappelle. It's like, no one wants to cancel Dave Chappelle. People just want Dave Chappelle not to be like given a platform to be wildly transphobic, homophobic, and incite violence towards trans people. Like, yeah. make your little jokes, go off, like love, love, love to laugh. You know, if you can yeah. make me laugh, great. But like, if you're being horrible, you're being horrible. <laughs> yeah. It's also like, what is, what is cancel? I mean, I think the cancellation of it is also, you're just like, I mean, now, now we're just speaking so broadly yeah. about, culture but it is like i he's definitely canceled for me in that i am not a fan anymore like right. i and that is you right know, but I'm, is that canceling? do anything to him is not liking well, someone anymore considered canceling like you don't have any power over dave Chappelle's money ability to get exactly. a job housing or yeah. anything 
So isn't that just fandom? That's where I'm always yeah. confused. I'm like, isn't those. It- I mean, I think that that's the reality, right? Like, that's the reality of what canceling, quote unquote, is, is like, I simply no longer hold. I'm not a fan. Don't right. hold him on a pedestal. I'm not going to consume his uh, material. Like, I just don't like what he has to say anymore. I and mean, it's not like I have the power to, like, cancel his contract right. or his <laughs> bank account or, like, other people being a fan of him. It's just for me and for, I think, a lot of folks who were fans, it's like, oh, no, you were you were not speaking from a broad, wise place. You were speaking from a selfish place cleverly as you know, a person who has experienced types of oppression, but like you didn't turn that experience into seeing what oppression does to other folks or or broadening it. And that's normal. I won't say it's like fine, but that's very normal. Most people's like experience is selfish and that's like understandable and sort of like, okay, it's not ideal. It's not the way the world is going to not be horrible, but it is common. Right. And yeah, it's just like, all right, he's certainly canceled for me but like i don't know right i mean i also just laugh at the like oh they've canceled the celebrity because they don't like them anymore and the same people who are like up in arms about cancel culture are obsessed with banning books and yeah you know like all yeah. that whole thing i don't want to get it's into the that. rhetoric <laughs> rhetoric of lies yeah exactly yeah, what are, like, what what are we gonna further I, get into? there's nothing to say um but yeah so so as far as like the i i just think it's like once again a good example of like what this book does with like the past, which Mm -hmm. is like, you can talk about the thing, you can place it in the past Mm -hmm. and that's what he wanted to talk about. And uh, what Hanif wanted to talk about. And it's like very, you know, like it or not, like Chappelle's material on um, blackness in the early two thousands and its relationship to racism and whiteness is probably the best like illustration of so many of these things, mm-hmm. what he did with his Comedy Central contract. Fun uh, little little side story is so for a long time, I my day job uh, in my twenties uh, was working at Comedy Central as a digital media producer, and my very first week on the job was the week Chappelle uh, left that contract, and <laughs> wow, <laughs> it was uh, a, a, a startling, startling, intense week for oh someone new on the job. That's yeah, so it was very funny. like, Ooh, what am I doing here? <laughs> Um, okay, wait, I want to talk a little bit more about this essay. This was one of the essays that really, really was special in my reading, the Magical Negro one. It talks about the prestige, which is the pledge, the turn, and the prestige, appear, disappear, reappear. And I wanted to ask you specifically, and this sort of has to do with comedy and writing and the Dave Chappelle stuff, which is like, how do you navigate as a comedian and a writer, the wrong people laughing. How do you evaluate Mm. who should be laughing and who shouldn't be laughing? And again, this also pertains to you as a podcaster. You do a show about racism that is a comedy show and it's you, an Asian man and a black or biracial. I don't know how Tani identifies. She's mixed, but I think she would say she's black woman Mm -hmm. um, talking about racism. And it's like, you know that your audience has lots of people of color, but you also know your audience has lots of white people. And so like, how do you protect i guess yourself or or your peace of mind or your audience from who should and shouldn't be laughing so i think the thing the 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 broad version of a thing that is not super useful probably to this question is that in the instances where it's 
that type of um, topic on Yo! Is This Racist? We mostly just glide out of being comedy and talk <laughs> earnestly. Right. So that probably isn't like broadly useful to most like comedians experiences. Sure. And then the other thing that is sort of less useful is the um, like the, the main show I have written on is mixed ish, um, which is the spinoff of blackish, but also my showrunners really were very conscious of this and like, what sort of, I mean, I, I, I hope this is fair to say, um, you know, the show was very funny, but when it was a tough topic, we would get in like, like the racist jokes, but like almost always in the mouths of white characters and they would, there would be a rejoinder right away. So, mm-hmm. so I guess the answer is, and then sometimes it would simply be serious. Mm-hmm. We would just like, we just got to fucking talk about this. Um, x or y topic um so the answer probably which is again not like super helpful (laughs) is sometimes it's just you just don't go for the joke i think it helps for me that like my sense of humor specifically is so tired of that type of racial humor Mm -hmm. that i just don't go there often like i don't personally find it funny so it's not my wheelhouse but I think the larger thing that maybe is more useful is like even like uh, speaking like about Dave Chappelle, it's not the crime. It's the cover up. Mm. And and what would happen if I made a joke? And I you know what? So so um, I don't have examples off the top of my head, but I definitely have in the past said things like um, out of places of ignorance on the podcast. The most likely stuff would be stuff about native folks or stuff about trans folks mm-hmm. that like came out of my mouth often just speaking, you know, often not even for comedy, but just like, you know, said a thing wrong, wrong perspective, whatever. Oh, and obviously about women like that, you know, I'm sure I've said things that are you know unintentionally misogynist, like a lot. And the real thing is, or, you know, whatever, baked in like <laughs> latent misogyny, subconscious, etc. I think for me, it's that like the other part and the other part of the bit with Tawny is like, we're idiots. Yeah. <laughs> you fucking, you, we said something wrong. Absolutely. We said something wrong. I'm positive right. <laughs> that was incorrect. And there's like, you know, and that a little bit has to do with sort of the ephemera of podcastiness, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. or at least our show. Like, like I, I do feel like your show is more making documents and there, <laughs> there's like, um, there, there is like a, a point in a, in a, beginning middle and end and and like you're you're making a self-contained thing that isn't like is more evergreen than say any given episode of yo is this racist which is like comes across as an advice show but it's sort of not but right. it's like an ongoing conversation so we're lucky in that like really what i think of uh, the podcast and this has probably somewhat to my detriment gone over into my tv writing which is like I never think of anything as like finished or done or the conversation, mm. which again, doesn't quite work as well. I mean, on, on TV, when we're doing like 23 episodes a season of mixed dish, it's like you work really hard on it. You make it as good as you can get it, but it's also like, there's going to be another episode. Right. That's sort of my mantra. It's like, there's going to be another episode mm. again, much, much easier for podcasts than TV, right. but there's always going to be more words. You're always going to be able to say something. You're always going to be able to correct. You're always going to be able to change and update and grow. 
And that's sort of the sad thing with, um, to me, the underlying thing with the Chappelle, but also with sort of all um, people, maybe this is just a factor of like being older and the fact, the, the, my mantra of there's always going to be another word, always going to be another show is less true with every passing day. Sure. <laughs> um, but the thing with Chappelle is like, Chappelle as an example, but all, all sort of like, you know, you see it uh, many times and much more in older white comedians is like this sort of like defensiveness and preciousness mm -hmm. about the previous thing. I mean, there is also like a generation of standups, I guess, like off of George Carlin that really took this like standups of the new philosophers thing to heart. Like, guess so what? Dumb. They're, they're not. Spoil they're not. Spoiler, and, they're not. And also philosophers aren't that smart. Like... Yeah. Also, philosophers are the new philosophers. They still exist. Yeah. They didn't go anywhere. They're still philosophizing. It, but it's it is just like people talking about their opinions with a huge amount of cultural bias and like an ego, you know, <laughs> an ego. And so it's like in that sense, they're definitely the new philosophers. <laughs> but it's like Chappelle's like you know just going off his like as of this recording current stance on things that I'm right and like you know you. Like inability to listen, inability to grow. I it feels like it simply must be a factor of like money and the echo chamber that you can build around yourself. But I also do think, and this actually uh, kind of gets to a, a later essay as well, um, that stand up comedy itself is the problem. I think like the idea that like mm. stand up requires this type of specific bravery i'm not saying it's not hard i'm not saying it's not like unfun but like the like imagined in, in in my opinion in my opinion the imagined crucible that stand-ups all think they go through and that builds a brotherhood and i say brotherhood i know there it's not purely a brotherhood but the toxic part of it is really a brotherhood mm -hmm. that like really like puts the medium before the message as it were right. like it's like just because you're doing fucking stand-up doesn't mean that inherent bravery creates like a, a thin it's, it's like a thin blue line you're like stand-ups are stand-ups and the most important thing is like the brotherhood of the comic and it's like no it's not right. some of them are awful some of them are saying dumb horrible things like what the fuck are you talking about and like but yeah it, it is like you know based off of how scary it was the first time. And we all, we all, they all, I've done stand up exactly seven times. Wow. Um, I've done it exactly once. I had diarrhea all day. Thank you. I, <laughs> well, I was mostly doing it because we were about to do some live Yosis racist show. So I was like, mm. I should literally just learn how to like hold a fucking microphone in front of people. Stand up is hell. And it's not ever that funny. Sorry. I said it. I hate stand up. I'm like anti stand up. <laughs> I hate it as well, but I, but I also was like over it and had no ambitions to be good at it. Yeah. I literally was just like, this is just public speaking practice because I'm about to do live podcasts. It, and it helped that it was like, like I was a working comedy writer when mm -hmm. I first tried it. So I was like, this is fucking easy. It's fine. <laughs> like, just like be confident <laughs> enough. Um, so I, I admittedly never felt that fear because I had no ambition in the space. So right. there was no actual failure and there's no actual embarrassment. It's like, I think nothing of these people. And I, so all of this is easy for me to say, but I'm just like, 
I it's oh I just hate it as a medium and yeah. like I hate that the the fear and actually a little bit so I I liked the essay about um it was it was it's Mike called, Tyson yeah, fear and, a crown and it's about Mike Tyson and uh Bernie Mac Bernie Mac yeah and it's like and and I also have like I, I've never boxed like in a match but I've I've I boxed enough that I was like at the part where we were like sparring for real right. like where there were definitely times where I was like. Okay, that fucking sucks. <laughs> and like, and I and I did jujitsu enough, so I've done a little bit of combat sports where I'm like, what I liked about it actually was, oh, those were the times when I actually did feel fear. Mm-hmm. Um, so the weird thing is, I think that was probably my favorite essay in the book, but also I disagree sort of fundamentally with one of the, like half of the premise of the like stand up parallel to it. Interesting, um, but I wonder if part of like the Bernie Mac of it that he gets at is like the fear and the sort of like combativeness of what Bernie Mac brought to it had more to do with who Bernie Mac was like where he was from what he looked Mm -hmm. like and that he too was sort of fighting his way into this brotherhood in this Mm -hmm. sort of bravado style way as opposed to sort of where we see Dave Chappelle now as someone who's on the inside and acting like he's fighting for something, you know, it's like the difference between actually fighting your way in as a black man into a super white guy, racist, sexist, homophobic space versus being Mm -hmm. a very successful person, black guy who's already been accepted and beloved by the people who are in there. I feel like there is like definitely a difference. Yeah. I guess for me, I think it, what, what the, at least like the parallel between like combat sports and the, the, um, up sort of regardless of what my inherent feelings about like how scary standup is go. It is like, to me, um, I'm trying to remember how it's phrased in here, but, but the thing I took out of this essay, uh, was like the, the, a lesson that was sort of like hard earned for me in combat sports, which is that like, I guess it's basically sort of a fake it till you make it. Mm. But I always afraid of remembered it. And and I, again, felt it more when I was boxing someone for the first time was like, Oh, right. I'm scared of them. And uh, what I didn't realize until I started throwing back is they're just as scared of me. Right. Or maybe they're not just as scared of me, but like I can do something to them as much as they can do something to me. And in fact, the more I do something to them, the less likely until I overextend myself, which is probably the stage of of where Dave Chappelle is. He has punched himself out thinking he's in the right. But up to the point, and certainly given my personality, I'm unlikely to extend past um, <laughs> my comfort zone, right, that far right, out of my right, comfort right. zone. So I will always be a person where aggression is actually going to be better than I think it is as a strategy. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of what I like, what I, what I uh, really took to mm-hmm. in, in, in this, that essay, this essay specifically, I was like, Oh yeah, I know that feeling. And weirdly, I have never drawn those parallels. And I sort of just partially because I sort of disagree with right, the, right, the right, right. side of it. But I really got it. And I was like, yeah, I like this a lot. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And then we're going to discuss the other 20 essays very quickly, I guess. (laughs) We got bogged down in Dave Chappelle. And I don't want to be bogged down in Dave Chappelle. So we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished, 
and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay. We're back. Okay. We're not going to talk about all the essays because some of them I just don't feel like I have a lot of thoughts or feelings about. But if we skip any that Mm -hmm. you loved, please speak up for yourself and your essays. The one essay that I think that we have to talk about is the 16 ways of looking at blackface. I thought that essay Uh was so incredibly good. And I think, I mean, I think like one of the things I'd be curious to hear you talk about as we go through this is that like I'm a black person who studied theater, who studied criticism, who is obsessed with the critique of performance. So this book is like really in my wheelhouse as a person who created theater and performed in theater. And, you know, this show is essentially a show, a criticism show, a book criticism show. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this book I found really interesting to think about performance as all things and and so I feel like I come to this from like a very it's a very like on brand for me book and everything. But so I'm cur- I'd be curious to hear your thoughts if those things don't line up for you. Obviously, you're not a black woman, so we can start, you know, diverging there. But sure. 16 ways of looking at blackface. 
first of all, I just loved that he finally said the thing that I think many black people think, which is like blackface doesn't look like black people at all. And black people have such amazing, (laughs) incredible skin and white people have such horrible skin. And the fact that you're putting like black, like no depth, nothing on your skin when you're trying to imitate the people with like the most beautiful, glorious skin is just like such a fucking joke. And I love that he said it because I feel like it's something that I think about but had never verbalized. So that's that. But you probably deal with this a lot on Yo is this racist. Do you? Yeah. And like people pretending to be black online and like using yes. David slang and bad photos. Do you ever worry that like you're getting emails from people on Yo that are like, I'm a black person. And why is it racist to, for my white yeah. friend to say the N word or whatever? So I think the thing that is like, it's talked about here for sure, but just to, I guess, like sort of cosign the, the general idea, but, but, and, and actually even relating to the theater practice of blackface is it's like the racists are not good at it. They're not good. Like, it's, it's very evident. It's just very evident what's blackface and what's not. And you see it on Twitter all the time. Like, it's like, it gets sniffed out like right. immediately. And part part of it, at least on Twitter, as far as that goes, is anyone racist enough to like pretend to be black for, to like support a conservative aim has no fluency with black folks. So right. like right. they like actually can't pull it off. So, but yeah, and I guess it is just like, um, yeah, I, I'm trying to think. I, I I guess it's like on Yosef's racist. The other side of it is like, actually, I, I will say kind of recently. I think Tani disagreed with me on this. Um. Is that like, oh, but, uh, possibly, was it possibly when you it were was me. We it was definitely me. Yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I was like, I think it was probably me. We talked about blackface on my episode around Halloween. I'm so sorry. No, okay. Yeah, I just remembered having, but the, the, like, it, it's just sort of the, like, give an inch, they'll take a mile of yes. it a little bit for me. We're just, just like, I know it's none of the shit really. And also none of the shit really matters, right. but sort of the fact, the fact is like, Anytime you kind of offer like an exception to white folks specifically, they'll fucking take it and abuse it. So that's why Anya was this racist. It's just like, no, 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 never. Right. Well, in my defense, you have to go and listen to people. But in my defense, this the question was a person saw it was Halloween and a person saw a hostess at a restaurant and he thought that she was in blackface. But then when he like turned the corner, he realized that she was dressed up as the tin man from tin man. Yes. So I said, no, that's not racist. (laughs) The guy should get his eyes checked because I don't think the dressing up as a tin man is racist. Your point was like, if it looks like blackface, even if it's not supposed to be blackface, maybe it is blackface. I I think that, but that's the thing. That's like, even as you say it out loud, my position is obviously unreasonable. Your position but, is unreasonable, but I get where it's coming from. I yeah. also because I also feel like in this same essay, like when they talk about the Ben Vereen story and how he was like trying to do blackface, like as this homage and like to call out the Reagan administration and like all this stuff. But then they just ended up cutting all the stuff that gave a context. So it is sort of one of those things mm-hmm. where it's like, if you don't want to look like an asshole for doing blackface you just shouldn't do it because you're it's going to be impossible to protect that it doesn't get interpreted in a certain way yeah so i get that point um i mean that's the the sort of the nature of comedy too right right? like like intentions and time or intentions are just like trashed by time i mean i think to me the the biggest example of this is like or the biggest example that I the most illustrative example of this that I I know about is like 
current generations of Twitter children just know Blazing Saddles from a two-second animated gif of where the white women at. Like, I do not they... know Blazing Saddles at all. Well, <laughs> and and well, you shouldn't. It's an old-ass movie that has, like, you know, good-for-the-time takes on race, but the thing is, it's like, like all satire, it just starts once it starts to fall apart like the wheels are off of it right um and and that is a little bit though it's like comedy isn't meant to be eternal right taste change points of view change and it's like okay and and that again not that we keep wallowing in the muck of fucking dave chappelle but it's like it's okay it's okay for your shit not to be funny anymore i mean you know ideally you don't become a huge fucking bigot but right it's okay for your stuff not to be funny anymore but it's not okay for your new stuff to be racist homophobic or whatever like if your old shit didn't age well i guess we can get over it like i watched some jamie fox shit where i was like after 9-11 oh my god it's so yeah. uncomfortable but, but you don't see jamie yeah. fox out there being like it's still perfect i'm gonna do even more of yeah, that of stuff. course not of course not um okay wait another essay how did you feel about the essay about black people in space i probably read that one slightly too superficially but i was like this feels dope to me that afrofuturism just kind of vibe it also helps that our our friend toddy is uh, as far as current fiction goes, like the the main black person in space, right. or not main. I guess there's other like Star Trek people, but she's like in space she's in my multiple main person, ways. Black person in space. She was like in space yeah, on the exactly. other space thing too. Um, I yeah, this one made me deeply emotional for whatever reason. I think part of it is because he so Hanif's mother has passed away years ago when he was young. I think like thirteen or so, give or take, and the aching love of a lost parent and the way he talks about his mom, like taking off her hijab when she comes home and her fro comes out and like, uh, my dad passed away almost 10 years ago. And that this essay just made me feel so many things. And like also the Trayvon Martin part of it about him being in space and having wanted to go to space and like that, that's an aspirational thing. And that this photo, and it just made me feel sad for black people that like we don't get to be thought about as people who are in space. But also it made me feel thrilled that we actually are people who are in space and go to space. And like the, the bothness of this essay, and I'm also not a person who is interested at all in space or science fiction. And yet this essay made me feel like I deeply care about black people being in space and like, he has that line where he's like, there are codes to be switched even in sci-fi, which I thought mm-hmm. like, ugh, I don't know. I don't even, I can't even articulate why I loved this one so much. And I don't remember loving it the first read, but the second read, I remember feeling like deeply, deeply, like I got teary almost reading this one. Mm-hmm. I don't. Know. I wonder, I mean, it, it feels like almost like your experience is sort of as described in this in this essay because it is like one of the reasons that like you know the the both like armchair psychology thing or but also just generally like black people have been excluded from the media of space for so long that it is like yeah space is for white people space is you know not um not where the future and it's also right of course like because of science fiction it is also sort of the dark implication of what the future what happened in the future right right Uh, and i think him writing earnestly about space 
I think is maybe mm-hmm. part of it too, of like, we should get to care about space. Like we should get to yeah. have public forums where we write essays about how great space is and our moms froze and little black boys yeah. were murdered. And like that this essay should, has every right to exist. I don't know. I yeah. just, ugh, I just love it. Cause it's, so it's optimism. I think that's, yeah. that's the thing is like you, you have to be optimistic thinking about outer space and like going to, and, and that's like, and even as we are, you know, doing things like going into space more, like you can start to see that it will, it is being segregated. Right. And it is like, you know, if it's this expensive and this like, whatever, it, you know, we're, we're, we're in the time when maybe some of these things can change, but as it stands, like we are headed towards the, the sci-fi dystopia that looks like a utopia. Right. Um, even in the, in like, you know, fucking the Elon Musk's of the world's brains. Right. And it's like, right. Like this is this, this essay and things like it are like how you begin the fight for that sort of like equality of the future or representation or just like, you know, not living in, you know? Yeah. It is true. I think I, yeah, clearly did not like read it as like closely and as like, it just, it just clicked for me in this read but also because i think not only is there like a vision for us in the future and we're finally getting to talk about and write about space but also that like we've always been in space like talking about michael jackson and like the moonwalk and labelle and like their costumes and like all of that stuff i don't know for whatever reason i just freaking loved this one um Uh besides fear a crown were there other ones that really stuck out to you as like ones that you loved yeah, the one about um uh black punks. Um Yes, that's board up the doors. Um yeah, that that's the one. So I think I think I may have mentioned this to you. I don't remember. Um but I immediately after finishing this uh before we recorded, I was like I was talking to a friend of mine who is a black punk and I was like you have to read this essay. Mm. Here I'll give you my copy. And was literally <laughs> about to hand him the copy that I needed to successfully or unsuccessfully depending depending on how people are thinking I'm doing, but just to navigate this podcast at all, I need this book. And I was like, you have to read this. You will like this so much. But, you know, because I'm also a person who, I grew up in in the Midwest and, like, engaged with a lot of this type of white culture. Um, I think more, like, from an even less informed place, but, like, it wasn't until a little later that I was like, okay, these are really not my people. Mm. Um and that combined with aging a little bit, I think, like, really, really hit me pretty personally. I was like, right, this is like, this is both both the age and the, like, uh, not being able to be part of a community that you want to be in. I mean, I definitely saw that with, like, even, like, in comedy, it's, like, such a white space. Mm-hmm. And, like, finding finding my actual people as opposed to the people that I thought would be my people has been interesting. Like, when I first moved to L.A., I was writing scripts that were basically, like, clones of like parks and rec Mm. or the office and i was like never got work from those and it wasn't until i wrote something like more much more autobiographical that i started like getting jobs and i was like right 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 i am who i am and learning that took way too fucking long but you know yeah but i'm there i guess I wonder what you think about the Beyonce one, because I when I was reading that one, I was like, I bet Andrew will have feelings about this. And it's similar. It's like being the only non-white person in 
a job. I mean, obviously, this whole book is speaking to black experience. So we're sort of stretching mm-hmm. the definition. Um, but sure. she talks about like the performance of being the good black person at work. And it's, you know, it's like, I think the title of the essay is, let me find it. Um, Beyonce performs at the Super Bowl. And I think about all the jobs I've hated. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, and right. first of all, I just love thinking about Beyonce performing at the Super Bowl as a job because I never would think that. But of course, it is very much her job. And she probably was like, oh, the producer's so annoying. Like, and eh, they keep calling me about my costumes. And eh. um, I guess my question is sort of like, did you feel connected to this essay having been the only Chinese person or Asian person like in a workspace and like having like, you know, (laughs) that's yeah. Oh man. That's right. Um, I, so I think it's like, I have, but I, I also want to sort of be cognizant of, you know, one of the main differences of the Asian American experience and the black American experience is like, our outrages tend to be less violent Mm -hmm. and less like, or sorry, not our outrages, but the things perpetrated upon us, like very generally speaking, please, you know, I understand there's lots of, yes, of course, but very generally speaking, it's like, you know, young, young Asian men are, uh, you know, significantly less likely to be gunned down for no reason, et cetera, you know, extrapolate from that. So, so it is a thing and, and there are, it's, you know, a lot well again i'm about to say something that is probably technically not correct but it's it's easier for asian people to sort of code switch and and not even code switch but just like be white adjacent well and there's an expectation around the stereotypes around asian especially east asian that like that you are yeah. belong in workspaces and that you're yeah, smart you're and one like, of the good ones yeah exactly yeah. And hardworking, et cetera. And the, so so there is a little bit of that. I mean, I it, it's a little not that it's, I guess, accepted or, or even as he talks about um, in, in this essay, it's like when the sort of tragedies of the world or, or injustices of the world. Um, I mean, I guess I'm just going to speak about my experience, but like like there is a little bit of triangulation about like how much like. I can own of this sort of thing or how much mm. is right for me to own. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's sometimes a part of that where I'm just like, but I, I, I guess I understand the feeling and I definitely have like, you know, as, as we've talked about, like had that feeling of just being like, fuck, like, right. what are we going to do with today? Right. Like, this is, is this like, and, and in any sensible place, there's, there's a way of just like, this is a fucking mental health day. Like, you right. don't get it. Well, he talks about how, like, the weapons are hidden in the small talk. And to me, that felt like so, like, the exact correct way to explain what it's like to be a black woman in a white, predominantly white workspace. And, you know, I have to be honest, I was not sure if this was, like, the right book for us to do because you're not black and it's a book about black performance and whatever. And then I also thought, like, it's an interesting conversation to have with someone who performs with a black person every week on the podcast, but also writes black characters and like Mm -hmm. writes into black performance. And so ultimately I felt like this was actually a kind of an interesting way to approach this book because there's the understanding of what performance is from the observer. And then also, and that, and what I think this book is more connected to is what the performers feel while performing the thing 
which mm-hmm. I don't think we never ever take nearly as much time to think about, like the performer performing yeah. versus the audience receiving performance. Well, and I think one nice thing about this book is like the way it kind of hops around to the personal, and, mm-hmm. and of course, like the 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 it, it's most um, most notable in the uh, every. M- uh, I guess sections are called movements and right. uh, they all begin with at times I've forced myself to dance essay, which that one, you know, it's very clear. Like this is about like everyone is a performer, but right. especially like, like um, it, you know, this lens is about how like the performance of like, not performance of blackness, but the way like blackness, black people have to like perform in the sense of like, you can't say always say what you're thinking. You right. always have to be. You could have to conform to different things at different times within whiteness, within blackness, within like, um, you know how this book is it is about how like relating to people who are not white or black either as much. But it's all there, and that is the thing that the sort of like broad from the specific that I really yeah can talk about and really am hit hard by um, is that like okay. This is this is the face we put on today. Um, And this is, you know, this is the even more the all the world's stage of it. Yeah, I guess that that's a little bit my calibration is like sort of realizing that it is different for black folks um, while relating to much of this. Did this book change the way that you saw or understand the performance of Asian solidarity to blackness in the last little bit um yeah i'm so the reason i am probably one of the wronger people to ask (laughs) about this question as far as asian folks go is i think um that's sort of definitely my the main way i'm an outlier in asian hollywood um i am like I, i would say i think I guess people could correct me if they have a different opinion, but I feel like I I'm like relatively hard on Asian people, especially for their anti-blackness and like not owning it. I think the most prominent one I've talked about is like, you know, Aquafina just Mm -hmm. completely fumbling, like her use, her, you know, speaking in a black set uh, as, as they say, like, and it is a thing where it's like, the current crop of young-ish Asian people, we really do not have a fluency or an experience with like a civil rights experience. Like mm. we we experience racism and some of us identify one way, but many of us are like able to shrug it off or sort of sublimate it. And partially it's because there isn't like the urgency of violence associated with the racism often. Again, I'm speaking very broadly here, but you know, and then a lot of us like don't really like think things through or just sort of internalize like the white point of view about like things that are like anti-black in a relatively marginal way. And that's like also sort of combined with, um, you know, my parents' generation is just sort of uh, ve- not all of them, of course, but like, you know, my the the type of people sort of like my parents, like like middle, upper middle class, like East Asian people virulently anti-black like just like not even close to a type of solidarity so um and then you know you see it in ways other ways um i guess the opposite way that's like you know the the obvious clear versions are just like the korean store owners Mm -hmm. in in south la and and the animosity there and you know i i so 
I guess what I mean, I, I don't really, I'm sort of meandering around the question. No, I mean, I'm like, it's okay. I, I wasn't sure. It's sort of like a really broad and sort of unfair question <laughs> to ask you to, to speak on it. I just wasn't sure if like seeing, like, I don't know if this book, this book changed my understanding of what it meant to be black and like the performance of blackness in a lot of ways. So I wasn't sure if it changed your understanding of what it means to be like in solidarity with black mm-hmm. people. I think the way that it did change was like, I I was a little like, because I kind of feel like I'm like, I'm pretty fluent in like mm-hmm. black popular culture. And reading this really made me be like, wow, that was a huge overstep <laughs> every time I even remotely thought that. Wait, I also um, felt that reading this book. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm in trouble. But I think part like, of I don't know how to play it, spades. Sorry. I know. I know. I know. I, I actually do know how to play spades. I don't. Um, I can play spades, but I don't know how to play spades. I don't play dominoes, <laughs> but not spades. And I'm not good at dominoes. So just <laughs> no, I don't like games. <laughs> Uh, we played a lot of spades in the mixed dish room. Mm. It was sort of, um, in fact, I, yeah, we we did an episode. Finally, we we were able to couch it as research, um, <laughs> basically. <laughs> like anytime, like we didn't have something directly to do, and the showrunners left, the fucking deck of cards came out yeah. and started playing spades. Um, but yeah, I fucking love spades. I guess <laughs> this is my point. Um, no, but yeah, I, I think it is like. I mean, but that's, as we said in the beginning, like, I think one of the things about this book is like, obviously this book is researched and like, it's not just like, but it's written in a way that he makes it sort of feel like if you're a black person or you're, you know, think, you know, black culture, you should be able to speak like this. Right. Um, Which is like not true, but I think it's sort of an inspiring goal. It is inspiring. It's so inspiring. Okay, before we, we have to wrap up soon, but before we do, I cannot not talk about the Mary Clayton essay a little bit more. It was my favorite when Mm -hmm. I read it. It haunted me. I think about it almost every single day since I've read the book. I've been listening to the song at least weekly since I read the book. The idea that we're just a moment away, I think the quote that he says is we're just we're all just one moment away from someone else's lust for power. I just (laughs) I it's just Hanif is such a good writer and he really took a song that I like knew and liked fine and turned it into like a song that I feel like has been haunting me and like Mary Clayton and of all the essays in the book for me, it was the one that just like jumped out and grabbed me by the throat and like did not let go. Like the story of her recording pregnant in the middle of the night with rollers in her hair and a fur and she's balancing on a stool. And then we find out that that child died before it was born. And then like comparing it with the Meredith Hunter story and Altamont and like all of that and then tying it into Mary Clayton now. It just, it, it like makes me feel like anxious trying to explain yeah. how great that essay is like and that, that essay is like yeah. super cinematic too. yes and i think i think what helps is uh, that was when on my first read through i was like okay i i have identified what's happening here and i will put the song on while i'm reading it mm-hmm. and so it just fucking grips you like yes oh my it's god very very like yeah just dynamic and like heart pounding and like scary mm-hmm. pretty scary as far Terrifying. as uh, yeah. essays go <laughs> like, yeah it's just like it's unlike anything I've ever read in the sense that I was like it like electrified me like when I think about like I feel like my heart rate is up just talking about it 
And also yeah. having it be the, it comes right before the Beyonce essay, which mm-hmm. I just thought that that was like such a stellar one-two punch. And when I reread it, it comes right after the Don Shirley Green Book essay. And the three of them together is just so insane. Like to me, it is the supreme essay of the of the book. Yeah. I know a lot of people like the Magical Negro one, the Ellen Armstrong. I know a lot of people really like the Spades one. Um, but for me, it's the Mary Clayton one. Like well, just hands down. I think it's also like I think you sort of I uh like identify and maybe this was like I wonder, but it, it, it is a little like I wonder how intentional it is, but just by the way it's put to, this book is put together, you're like it must be very intentional. Yes, very intentional. But the way the the book like flows into that like sort of climactic mm-hmm. sequence mm-hmm. is just like shit. Yeah, because that that probably also was like it's like Right around when I like really, really was getting how to read this book. And I think I probably read those all in one sitting, yeah. like in the evening with like a glass of wine. And I was like, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's just like it was yes. very intense because the book definitely has a flow to it where it's like you sort of are like getting getting up into it. Then you get to this part where it like really hits its stride and you're just like, holy shit, holy shit. And then the way it sort of tapers out about like closeness and it's like the essay on masculinity the essay like on like love and masculinity the essay on rage and like it sort of kind of tapers out because I think what it is is that these these middle essays are actually about performances as opposed to Mm -hmm. some of the other stuff is about the performance of grief the performance of rage and these are about like actual I mean they're about performances of other things but they're also about performances Mm -hmm. in a way that like we can understand um we're like so out of time and I, I'm like <laughs> devastated because there's so like, we didn't even talk about the Whitney Houston stuff, which is incredible. And the Carlton oh, yeah. stuff and like the stuff about what it means to be white adjacent and like to be successful, which means white people love you, but to also feel like you're yeah. like that the people that you come from in this case, black people like own you or like you're beholden to them. Uh, there's just so I feel like, <laughs> Like, and like the idea of like acting white as an insult, like that, that essay is just so good too. They're just, I mean, they're just so good. Like even the ones I didn't like, like, I think my least favorite one was, um, the beef sometimes begins with the dance, which was like about new Jack city, a thing that I don't know anything about. Um, sure, sure, sure. That essay was like my least favorite. It, It did nothing for me. Um, I was really fascinated by the, the like the James Brown of it at the top of that mm, one. I did that was like, like that. very like, but like interesting. Yeah. I was like, oh my god, yeah, mm, the interest. I yeah, really think about. I'm this. with you, yeah. but I, but I I think like I on the like I was reading this wrong tip. I do feel like it like it because it, it's funny because like I like they are clearly discrete essays, mm-hmm. but I think I just thought of it as like a, a wave and so like there's probably the ones that i like the least are the ones that i just like you know didn't process but mm. i was yeah but i just like things i just didn't process because it was like taking on the whole thing and it it just felt like a fucking four-day road trip with right. like again the smartest motherfucker you've ever met and i was like oh right I don't right. know anything. I don't know anything. I feel like I, I used to always ask people like, oh, do you think this book would make a good movie or a TV show? And I have to say that I think a TV show that delves into each of these essays as like different moments in black performance, like a mini series or whatever, mm-hmm. 
would be fucking incredible. And like getting to see like the footage and like, yeah, like a whole essay on like Whitney Houston and proximity to whiteness and like the time period and all of that. Like, I would just love it. I even I mean, I'm I'm loath to do this because I I worry that this is not meant to sound as if it's diminishing it. But there is a version where like just an amped up audiobook of this mm-hmm. could be incredible is m- maybe the perfect reading or or like if he would just do like a live reading with like a, a you know ability to run multimedia mm. tape behind him or something like yeah. that it's like I, I feel like it's like so like good as it is but then like yeah the ones where i was like had the peace of mind to like just load the song and read it or like right. to be like you ready. know whatever i was like this is like fucking great like just as an experience. So I don't, I don't know what that would be. And again, I don't want to cheapen it by saying like, it should be a slideshow, right. but like, no, I feel you. Part of me kind of thinks that would be very good. Yeah. Okay. This is the last thing we do every episode. We have to do this. We talk about the title and the cover. The title is a little devil in America notes in praise of black performance. And then the cover is all black with two dancers from the sort of first essay, the, um, the soul train slash dance marathon and you the back of the man and they're in the air and she's like got this look of sort of like surprised wonder like can you believe we're doing it on it and you know without being too obnoxious about my love for this book I think that it's a perfect title and I think that it is a perfect cover like the picture Mm -hmm. is perfect I just when I look at it I feel things I have thoughts I just I love how dark I just I just I love it I don't and the well it's like it's like yeah sorry no it's nice because it's like dark and like a little high contrasty but it is that thing where it's like um you know I think I think obviously probably the larger world heard most about this when Moonlight came out about like Mm -hmm. cinematography Mm -hmm. and like black skin specifically and it is that thing where you're like, yes, this is like a photograph of black people, yeah. which is like not, you know, as photography is taught, it's not trivial to make that for like right. people who haven't thought about it as a specific skill. Right. And um, it's like you can't tell where the black of the background and yeah. the black of the people kind of begin and end. So it's sort of like where does the performance start and what's just like being black? Yeah. And like, I just love and the title is a Josephine Baker quote, which she gets a lot of play in the book, though. Again, the Josephine Baker stuff was probably my second least favorite. I just it didn't do it for me on both reads. But but I think like um, what really helped um, not helped, but what what maybe set me up on uh, again, uh, I, I definitely would would understand if people they shouldn't read it the way I read it. But <laughs> um, the like subhead of like notes and praise of black performance did sort of set me down the path of like, okay, black performance and like mm-hmm. understanding that that obviously is going to be broader than simply like a bunch of concert reviews right. or whatever right. it right. could have been with a similar title. And like, I think like the, as far as like the cover like leads into that flow, it's like, yeah, pretty, pretty awesome. And no, uh, beyond grateful to you for uh, both like, you know, letting letting me talk to you about this book um talk with you about this book but also like um just suggesting it in the first place um, when i was like really looking for stuff to read that was like this like this is like exactly the thing that i didn't quite know the specifics of what was missing from what i'd been reading but like this is 
beyond perfect for me on a personal level of like what I needed out of my reading habits. I love that. Or lack thereof. That's a perfect no, place to end. No, thank you so end. much. Really, really wonderful. Everybody, if you haven't read it yet and you've listened to the end, you must go read this book, A Little Devil in America. Mm-hmm. It's by Hanif Abdurkeeb. He's great. Read everything he writes. Go follow him on Instagram and Twitter. He's just like so smart and interesting, obsessed with him. He also did an episode of The Sack. So if you haven't listened to that yet, it's from April, but I'll link to it in the show notes. Andrew, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. And I've said it, I said it 10 seconds ago, but truly thank you so much for like getting me to read this book, introducing it to me. It was amazing. Yay. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Andrew for being our guest. The Stacks Book Club pick for January 2022 is Passing by Nella Larson. We will be discussing this book on January 26th, and you can tune in next Wednesday, January 5th, to find out who our guest will be. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our incredible editor is Christian Duenas. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Mm-hmm.